Blog Talk Radio. Do you watch Fox News all day? Are you dizzy from conservative spin? Are you a birther or teabagger? You might be suffering from a condition called barachnophobia. If so, the only cure is Liberal Dan Radio. Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Central on Blog Talk Radio. Warning, Liberal Dan Radio is not a substitute for doctor's advice. Severe cases of barachnophobia may require psychiatric help. This may prove expensive if Republicans repeal health care. Listening to Liberal Dan Radio may cause you to embrace things like facts, logic, and reason. If these symptoms last for more than four hours, you have been cured. For more information, go to liberaldan.com. Welcome back to Liberal Dan Radio's Puff from the Left, That's Right. This is your host, Dan Zimmerman, coming from New Orleans, Louisiana. <clears throat> to join the conversation, it's area code 347-838-8368. That is area code 347-838-8368. Or you can join us in the chat room at blogtalkradio.com slash liberaldan. You can also connect via Skype that way as well. And if you're listening after the live broadcast, you could always leave your questions, comments, concerns over on the show page at liberaldan.com. Uh, most of the show is going to be discussing the death of uh, Antonin Scalia. Uh, but before that, uh, I always want to get into this week's headlines. Associate Justice Antonin Scalia was found dead over the weekend while on a hunting trip. The first shocking revelation was that it wasn't from a Dick Cheney shotgun blast. In related news, Mitch McConnell stood firm, stating that the Senate will move to block all nominees presented by Obama and that the American people should have a say in the nomination process. Despite the fact that this idea has no basis in constitutional requirements placed on the president or the Senate, Senator Mitch McConnell is also sharing a disagreement with Senator Mitch McConnell from 11 years ago, who stated that after debate, each presidential nominee deserves an up or down vote. Amazing how one's opinion changes because of a change in president. In other news, John Kasich announced the desire to create a new agency to promote Judeo-Christian values. We tried the Crusades previously. It didn't work. Also, when Christian Republicans say Judeo-Christian, they mean Christian. In food news, it has been reported that some grated Parmesan cheese sold in America is up to 20% cellulose, i.e. material made by cheese. I have heard about hard and nutty cheese is being popular, but not woody and grainy. Something seems fishy about these cheeses. Well, no, there's not fish in them, it's just wood. In music news, Kanye, I guess if you want to call it music, Kanye West reported being $58 million in debt. No wonder he has been kissing Beyonce's ass for a while now. He needs her to hook a brother up. In science news, humans and Neanderthals are thought to have interbred 50,000 years earlier than previously thought. That inbreeding continues in West Virginia and other parts of the South. And finally, in entertainment news, Deadpool destroyed expectations and got $135 million over its opening weekend, the highest ever for an R-rated movie and for any movie released in February. It was the top opening weekend for any Fox movie, beating Star Wars Revenge of the Sith by $27 million. Seems like the Merc with the Mouth shot one right up Hollywood's Main Street. And that is Headlines. Now, before I get into 
the topic at hand, which is uh, the death of Scalia and the impacts that it might have or that it will have on many things, the the, Supreme Court rulings, cases that have been heard already by the Supreme Court that will be getting a ruling, and incoming other cases that might be heard. There's, you know, there's the issue that I brought up about John Kasich and how he wants to create his little agency that will promote Judeo-Christian values. Now, this is the really funny thing. I had shared that on Facebook. I never, I didn't actually watch the video. I shared it just for the headline. I made the joke about the Crusades and let that be the end of it. And then I decided to watch the video while I was waiting for the show to start. And I was typing out some of the headlines. I included that line about Judeo-Christian and how when Jews, or when Christians, Christian Republicans say Judeo-Christian, they really mean Christian. So then I hear this little nugget. I mean, we need to be messages around the world about what it means to be to have a Western ethic, to be part of a Christian Judeo-Christian uh, um, society. It- let's let's see, let's play that again. I mean, we need to be messages around the world about what it means to be to have a Western ethic, to be part of a Christian Judeo-Christian uh, um, society. It- you heard that to be part of a Christian Judeo-Christian. So he. Freudian slip there, folks. He really meant Christian. He proved me right. Even before I got the chance to air this, he proved me right. And, you know, I can get a, I could probably do a whole show on why there should be no such thing as the term Judeo-Christian. There are so many differences between the two religions. Yes, they share a common book. They share the Torah, though they share what Christians would call the Old Testament, what Jews would call a Tanakh. And they, you know, but they don't, they don't keep the rules of the Tanakh. They don't keep kosher. They don't keep the Sabbath holy. They, there's many of things that Christians do that Jews can't, the Jews do that Christians don't. So the idea that there is a, quote, Judeo-Christian set of values is, is just horribly flawed. But they say it because they don't want to be seen as promoting. We're promoting this one religion. This is the religion we're promoting using government, and that's unconstitutional. So let's just make up this term, Judeo-Christian, and we'll, once we make up this word, it, it, doesn't mean, it means that we're not promoting one religion. In reality, it is what it is, and it really means what they, what you know it means. And what you know it means is that they want to promote Christianity using our government. This is a guy who brags about cutting government waste and spending. Could you not, how could you be any more wasteful than taking money and spending it beaming messages to other countries to promote religious faith. You know, there are plenty of Christian organizations that pump money into evangelism. They don't need the government's help. And that's why we have a First Amendment. Because they don't need the government's help. They can do it all on their own. It's as simple as that. So, anyway. 
I digress. I will get back. Let's get back to the, the subject in, in hand, which is the death of Antonin Scalia and why this is a huge game changer. Now, you know, the first thing I posted when this happened was that I felt sorry for his family, his loss. You know, I may disagree with somebody, but I don't necessarily mean that I want him to die. Now, oh, jeez. <laughs> okay, there's a, before I get into all that, I have a funny side note. Um, a friend of mine, I, I don't like Brian Adams. I am not a big fan of Brian Adams at all. Reason being, um, we went to a Brian Adams concert and she, he, uh, there was a sign when I picked up my tickets and it said, no professional video equipment and no flash photography. Well, I had a little Canon smart shot or whatever, and it's definitely not professional video equipment. And I turned off the flash. So I was following the rules of the house and I'm sitting there. I'm just taking a little picture, taking a little video, whatever, just to share with my wife to remember that we're, this is our little anniversary um, outing and that we're, you know, watching Brian Adams. Before this, I liked Brian Adams and I liked his music. Um, he picked, and, there's, and there's a whole bunch of people with cell phones just holding up. I'm, I'm pretending like I'm holding up a cell phone as if you can see it. Holding up their cell phones and also videoing him. He points me out and says, I better not see this on YouTube later. Now, earlier in the show, Brian Adams had stated, asked the audience, how many people have my new album? And he said, and, and one person was like, me, I do. And he said, oh, so you're the one. So my response is going to be, Maybe if you posted more of your stuff on YouTube, people would be more aware of the fact that you have a new album and you might increase your sales. However, I did not want to get kicked out for the sake of my wife who loves, still likes Brian Adams. And I, I just shut my mouth. So a guy comes over to me, says, you know, security guard says, no cameras, no photography. I'm like, the sign said this, and I followed your sign. It was no pictures. I'm like, all right, well, you better tell everybody over there with their cell phones on that they also need to put down their cell phones and stop recording. So he did. To, to, to be fair to him, he did. They, they started again. Of course, Brian Adams didn't bitch and moan about them putting their phones back up and recording them again. But me, I was the bad guy for using my little short shot to capture a couple of seconds of video um, for a song that my wife might like to watch. And I wasn't intending on putting on YouTube at all. So a friend of mine from middle school posts on Facebook earlier today that she's going to go see Brian Adams. And I'm like, boo. And I explained to you know, I said, you know, well, I'm not a big fan. Um, I said, just don't let him see you with a camera. Uh, or he might call you out for, you know, trying to bootleg his stuff or whatever. And so all of a sudden when I started laughing and when I changed the subject, I see my Facebook notification of my friend who recorded 34 seconds uh, or I guess 37 seconds of summer of 69. So, yeah. So I basically said that she's a bad girl because she took the video and posted it on Facebook, um, you know, 
against what his wishes would have been. So he can go screw himself for all I care. I don't like, I, 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 I refuse to listen to him in my car anymore. Like, it, it, you know, I won't even, I won't do him any sort of whatever. I'm not going to make him any money whatsoever that I can help. Not that my little penance is going to break him, but, you know, I was very annoyed at that fact. It ruined my night uh, that I was supposed to be having with my wife. So that's my little rant on Brian Adams. Now, back to Scalia. Um, Scalia, he, uh, what was I going to say? Okay, so there's there's several things to be talked about here. Um, actually, that's about that time. I think let's go ahead and take the first commercial break. I'll do that. Then we can go and talk about uh, Scalia and the impact on you know, the Supreme Court and rulings and the impact on the presidential election. And, you know, we'll talk about some of his rulings as well. You know, some of them, some of them good, most of them bad. And I'll talk about some of the, and even some, what I think was uh, bad press bad actions by the press when it comes to one of the recent things that he didn't have the chance to rule on before his death, but he did sit in here, the case anyway. So the call in is 347-838-8368. Jerry Cook, 347-838-8368. This is Little Dan Radio. Talk from the left. That's right. Are you planning a trip to Disney soon? Do you want help avoiding spending mistakes and making the most of your vacation? Then check out BudgetEars.com, a new site devoted to helping you get the most mouse for your money. What kinds of tickets should you get? Is the dining plan a good deal for you? Should you stay on grounds or not? Should you buy park hoppers? Many other sites are filled with information about what other people like to do. But BudgetEars is geared to help you make the best decision for you. So check out BudgetEars.com or go to YouTube.com slash BudgetEars and help make your trip the best it can be. BudgetEars.com is not a travel agency and it is not affiliated with the Disney Corporation or any of its holdings. I am sick and tired of the propaganda in today's media. You know, we can't have a sane discussion about politics. Well, yes, you can, and it's on RLJS Radio Live with the girls, Monica RW, and Autumn S. I'm there every week when they discuss Michigan and national politics, job search, unemployment, and more from an independent laugh, sanity-based point of view. So, tune in. RLJS Radio Live, Saturdays and Sundays at 11 a.m. sharp here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. And welcome back to Liberal Dan Radio. Talk from the left, that's right. This is your host, Dan Zimmerman, coming to you from New Orleans, Louisiana. To join the conversation, it's area code 347-838-8368. That is area code 347-838-8368. I did do a tweet earlier on before the show, and I said if you retweet this and follow the show, then you have a chance to win your choice of a Liberal Dan Radio bumper sticker. I haven't decided exactly how many I'm going to give out, but it'll be at least 10. Um, so you have to follow so I can make sure that I can get, you know, tell you how to, how to get me your information so I could mail you the bumper sticker. 
And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, ask for people to post pictures of their bumpers, Liberal Day and Radio bumper stickers on their cars. Those people who do that will have a chance to win a T-shirt. So that's, uh, that, that's a little bit of a contest followed by another contest. And um, so that will be, you know, I guess one way that, I, you know, maybe I could think of to promote the show or what have you. Then, you know, it's a way to get a bumper sticker and or maybe even a T-shirt for free. So go ahead and retweet that. Follow me. Um, spread the love. Share the word about the podcast. And, you know, let's let's make this be a little more successful. Last couple of weeks, I've had a couple of calls, uh, people calling in. So I'm hoping that trend continues and we get more uh, conversation about the issues, um, you know, from my side of the aisle and other side, the other side of the aisle as well. Everybody is welcome as long as you're respectful. So tweet of the week, let's do that, get that, get that out of the way first. Uh, the tweet of the week is from Elizabeth Plank, uh, feminist fabulous is the Twitter username, as you can see here on the list of tweeters of the week. Um, her tweet was, Rubio mentioning someone on stage will choose the next justice is terrifying. Hashtag GOV debate. And that is terrifying. She also gets honorable mention because when I looked at her page, I saw the pinned tweet, which um, Marco Rubio criticizing Hillary Clinton, saying Hillary Clinton can't lecture me on student loans. I've had student loans, and I have a plan to modernize higher ed. So she goes, wait, does this mean Marco Rubio can't lecture me about my uterus because I have a uterus? That is excellent. Excellent tweet. Very well done. Didn't take place this week, so it's not tweet of the week but it still gets honorable mention because I saw it today and I liked it. So um, let's uh, get to the topic at hand, shall we? Back to Scalia. And one of the first things to discuss is really the current impact. You know, we can actually, let's discuss the presidential race and the politics surrounding what's, going to happen and will Obama be able to name a, name somebody to the court? And obviously, I, th I think the obvious question is, unless, unless they start seeing some polling data showing that this obstruction is going to kill them in the, in, in the election and that by doing this obstruction <clears throat> that they will lose the Senate and that they will lose the House and that they will lose the presidency, uh, I don't see them caving on this at all. And we will probably have eight Supreme Court justices until this court goes on recess. Now, when will the court go on recess? That's according to one of the Supreme Court rulings. Uh, the court is allowed to choose when to say when it is on a recess or when it is not on recess, um, which is somewhat ridiculous in that, you know, conservatives like to talk about what is, is, and referring to Bill Clinton and, and his sponging of words. But, you know, it's like the Supreme, the, the Senate can go on a break, but if it's not a re, it's not an official recess, and it's, it, they can still say, well, we're still in session. We're just taking an extended four-week break. But we're still in session. So... That's going to be 
an interesting thing to come. Because normally they take a break in the summer. Normally they take a recess in the summer. The upcoming calendar is, you know, I haven't looked at the calendar yet uh, just to see what it is. But the upcoming calendar, you know, will probably show an anticipated long break over the summer, especially when some of these senators are going to have to go back to their home states and start running for office and start campaigning around the state, especially senators who have much bigger areas to campaign in and less areas to, you know, as opposed to a house person who has a smaller area. And of course, depending how big the state is, will depend on how much traveling they have to do. But you know the point. You, you get my drift. There are some states where obviously the, there's only one congressional seat, and as such, that congressional seat is the same distance as the Senate seat. It'll be interesting to see when they do take a break, and if it's long break, if they call it a recess or not. And if they call it a recess, then President Obama can make a recess appointment. So they're not going to. So, so they're not going to take a recess. But <clears throat> the Supreme Court, when it said uh, recess appointments, that, that, they, that the Senate can basically make its own recess appointments. Um, but yeah, the Senate can determine when it is in recess and when it is not in recess. Um, it'll it'll be interesting to see they can justify stretching it out for that long. So if you go to SCOTUS blog, it actually has a discussion on this. Um, the National Labor Relations Board versus Noel Canning. Um, so basically he appointed three commissioners, Obama appointed three commissioners to the National Labor Relations Board during a brief recess of the Senate. Um, the court was the first pronounced, it was the court's First pronouncement in the scope of the president's power to make recess appointments. <clears throat> and according to SCOTUS blog, it was a, it was a mixed bag. Um, Noel Canning, the soft drink bottling company, challenged the president's appointments. Um, and there were conservative business groups that supported regardless as a victory. Um, but the president could declare victory up to a point. Uh, the court upheld the power to make other recess appointments as long as they were made during recesses that last at least 10 days. Uh, Breyer um, wrote an opinion of the court, which Kennedy, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan agreed fully, uh, even before the court addressed the particular questions, that it clear that decision would be influenced by the long historical practice of recess appointments. Um, court basically said whether the Constitution allows the president to make recess appointments during intra-session recess breaks or only intercession recess breaks, right? the break between the one, the two one-year sessions. Um, and they basically said that, yes, you can be between an intra and intercessions. The one that narrows the scope of the ruling, even if it doesn't matter whether the recess is inter or inter, it does matter how long the recess is. Here, the court said that any recess that is shorter than three days is not long enough to make a recess appointment necessary and that a recess that is longer than three days but shorter than 10 days will, in the normal case, also be too short to necessitate a recess appointment. The court added that there may very well be unusual cases, such as a national catastrophe that renders the Senate unavailable, but calls for an urgent response in which recess appointments would be printed, even though the recess was still shorter than 10 days. Court's answer on the second question posed, 
whether the president can use his recess appointments to fill any vacancies happening to exist when the Senate is in recess, or if he is limited to vacancies that are created while the Senate is in recess, favor the Obama administration. So if there is a reset, if there is a appointment to be made, and that happens right now, like Scalia. So if Scalia decides to, uh, you know, or, or to the president of Scalia, you know, he dies and it's current, they're not in recess. So what some conservatives argued before the court was the, was the problem, the recess had to start during the recess. The, the vacancy had to start during the recess where other people were arguing, the, I guess the Obama administration was arguing that the vacancy didn't have to start during the recess. It could start beforehand, but as long as the, it, it continued until that recess. So and then the third question, whether the Senate can prevent the president from recess appointments even longer during its even longer recess by holding pro forma sessions, i.e., that is sessions which no work actually gets done every three days. The court answered that question in the affirmative, rejecting the federal government's argument that the pro forma sessions are, in essence, just a sham to thwart the president's recess appointments. In the court's view, all that matters is whether the Senate says it is in session and could at least, in theory, conduct business, which is possible even if unlikely, at pro forma sessions. Uh, however, here it is important to note that all nine justices agreed that particular recess appointments were invalid. There was not a little harmony in the course. Scalia wrote a separate opinion that was joined by Roberts and Clarence Thomas and Alito. Scalia explained in a lengthy statement from the bench that Pilot Briary's summary of the court decision he and his three colleagues would have held that the president's recess appointments power is substantially more limited than the court ruled today. They would have ruled that the judge could only make recess appointments during intercessions and then only to fill vacancies that are creating during the recess. And the majority did not escape Scalia trademark remarks. So basically what it means is that, according to the website, according to SCOTUS blog, um, three recess of, that three recent appointments to NL, NLRB were invalid, um, so that any decisions made by those people were invalid, uh, but, no, but the court ruling would invalidate earlier recess appointments, uh, and that... Short answer is that it will, it will depend on which party is in power. The Democrats at, at that time controlled the White House and the Senate uh, with the decision by some Democrats that can Democrats put nuclear option, blah, blah, blah. Uh, however, um, the Republican Senate could not only block the president's nominees, but prevent the president from making recess appointments by ensuring that it never recesses for more than a few days. And <clears throat> the same thing could happen in the 2016 elections. If the Democrats control the Senate, but lose the White House, the Senate Democrats could... Um, so basically, the, the short and the, the short of the story is this: is that you have a situation now where the Senate can basically declare pro forma sessions. They can declare that they're going to be in those pro forma sessions, and as such, prevent President Obama uh, from making recess appointments during their extended breaks which is kind of BS, if you ask me. That whole, now if you're on recess, you're on recess, and that should be the end of it. There should be no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, and we will see how the Senate abuses this. And that basically comes down to the, the impact, again, on the presidential race. <clears throat> so when the people of this country see, and, and I welcome this, look, I welcome the Republicans to put on grand display their obstructionism, their willingness to 
not even hold because because they're basically saying even though they have a majority and they're really really good about getting all of their senators to vote in lockstep with each other so they're basically saying that they're not even going to hold these sessions that they're not going to let any part of the process go and that might change a little bit as as we see as time goes by um, they may decide to i mean because in reality you know they could they were just they were really stupid here they could have said we, of course, will allow these nominations to take place. We, of course, will allow these, um, you know, we will have hearings over anybody Obama appoints, and then we will allow the Senate to vote accordingly. And with their more than 50 votes, with their 51-plus 50, uh, votes that they have in the Senate currently, they could then block any person that Obama appoints or nominates because he wouldn't have the votes to get support. Now, are they scared that some people may very well not have, might join with the Democrats? And as such, they might get convinced five Senate Republicans to jump ship on a well-qualified candidate? Well, that, that could very well happen. But it's not. Probably won't. I won't hold my breath on that issue at all. Now, you know, there, I've discussed this on the show previously. There has been hypocrisy on both sides when it comes to judicial nominations. For example, Democrats filibustered judicial nominees under Bush. The Republicans complained of the constitutional requirement, supposedly, to have an up or down vote. Now, nowhere in the Constitution does it state that a nominee is guaranteed to get an up or down vote. That's not a guarantee thing at all. You're not going to get an up or down vote in the Constitution because it's not there. That's not, you can't find it anywhere. So the Constitution does require only a simple majority, or doesn't require it. Just requires it doesn't require a simple majority. It just is advised and consent. It does say that two thirds need to concur on a treaty, for example, but it doesn't say that put any vote threshold on what would be required for a filibuster uh, or to break a filibuster on a Supreme Court nomination. So they are free to filibuster. But the Republicans didn't like that and still insisted that an up or down vote should be had until Obama comes into office and he starts making nominations then those idiots start filibustering. Now, when I believe Sotomayor was first, when Sotomayor was nominated, uh, Ted Kennedy was still alive. As such, they had 60 votes in the Senate. So there was no, even if they threatened a filibuster, they could get cloture whenever they wanted to. So it was, not an issue. It was a non-issue there. But when Kagan was nominated, and I might have these reversed, but when Kagan was nominated, Scott Brown had already taken the seat. So there were actually 59 Democrats, at which point there could have been a filibuster, but there was not because enough Republicans agreed that Kagan was a reasonable choice. So the later nominees started getting filibustered, especially with, after the elections of 2010, when that, when that next session started in 2011, you only had 55 Democrats. 
At that point, you could easily filibuster any Obama nominee. And so the Democrats hypocritically complained about that, and the Republicans hypocritically uh, filibustered when they demanded an up or down vote. So in the headlines, I discussed this. McConnell, back in 2005, stated, because of the unprecedented obstruction of our Democratic colleagues, the Republican conference intends to restore the principle that, regardless of party, any president's judicial nominations after full debate deserves a simple up or down vote. I know that some of our colleagues wish that restoration on the principle were not required, but it is a measured step that my friends on the other side of the aisle have unfortunately made necessary. For the first time in 214 years, they have changed the Senate's advice and consent responsibilities to advise and obstruct. Given those results, many of us had hoped that the politics of obstruction would not have been dumped in the dustbin of history. Regretfully, that did not happen. But now the politics of advise and obstruct are back out of the dustbin and are back in the hands of the Republican Party, who are now using them fully. So again, I welcome them to do this, though. I want this on display. I want the people to see how horrible they're going to be about this. And they'll, maybe they'll, people will finally start to get the hint that all of the issues and gridlock that have been taking place over the last eight years because the person that was elected twice to president, once for president, once for re-election for president, to get his job done, to get his issues passed, they'll finally see that, oh, maybe it's not his fault that it's not getting done. Maybe it's these Republicans who, well, they didn't let the people have a hearing. They'll see the ridiculousness, and it'll affect the polls, which will eat what do one of two things. A, it will force them at that point to act and to have hearings. Or B, they'll lose the elections and they won't have to worry about a thing. Because they will, they, they will have a, well, actually, they're saying that the electorate should have a say in this. So if they're saying that the, that the people should have a say in this, and the, and the people vote, and they pick whoever is chosen to be the Democratic nominee, i.e. Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders, Will they then agree at that point that a Democratic nominee should be the one who picks the president? Huh? Will it be will, – will they then vote for whoever it is that that person chooses because they, they say, well, the people should have had their say? But no, they're not going to do that. Anybody who believes that the Republican Party will just allow Hillary Clinton – or Bernie Sanders to appoint Scalia's replacement once the people have, quote, had their say, is an idiot. Why? Well, because the people had their say in 2012. In 2012, the people decided that, above anything else, that the person who should be the one to nominate president or to do any vacancies in the court system, even the Supreme Court, between January of 2013 and January of 2017, that person will be Barack Hussein Obama. But they're supposedly, as somebody else masterfully put, they only believe that the president, the black president, has three fifths of the presidential power that a normal president would have, and that he is not allowed. He would not should not be allowed to have this power for the remainder of his term. If they do block, if they do obstruct for this 
nomination process and prevent President Obama from naming a, another person to this court, it will have been the longest, longest time that a seat on the Supreme Court has gone unfilled, period. And so, again, I welcome them to make a fool of themselves. Because at the end of the day, if Obama is unable to name this person, and it goes to the next president, and the next president is a Democrat, guess what happens? Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders gets to name the next person. And wouldn't it just be awesome to see that next person be Barack Obama? And then you'd have to be able to shove it in their faces that, well, you guys said that the people should have to have their say, they have their say, and now we have Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders picking the next uh, constitution, the next person who's going to be uh, sitting on the Supreme Court, and what better person to have sitting on the Supreme Court than a constitutional scholar, a person who's, who, who majored in, who specialized in constitutional law, than the current sitting president, <coughs> Justice Obama. That would be excellent, and I would wholeheartedly support that as well. Anyway, we're going to take a break and continue our discussion about Scalia and his passing and the impact it's going to have on presidential nomination and upcoming ruling and, you know, have some discussion about, you know, his history and is he is he the genius that everyone makes him out to be or is he flawed? Anyway, 347-838-8268. This is Liberal Dan Radio. Talk from the left. That's right. Listening to Win Workers Independent News, a production of Diversified Media Enterprises. I'm Doug Cunningham. United flight attendants will picket Chicago's O'Hare Airport Thursday in support of concluding contract negotiations. AFACWA President Sarah Nelson says the United flight attendants are united in a commitment to achieve a new standard for their careers, and it's time to complete United's merger by getting this labor contract done. Nelson says this new labor contract for flight attendants at United has already taken five years. It's about control, and it's about that 1%, and you know very well that they will not stop until they have all the money and all all the control. That's why we have our unions. We've got to stand up and fight back. And that is what we are doing. And we will use every resource necessary and we will use all of our solidarity to fight back for what flight attendants are doing. AFA-CWA represents 24,000 United flight attendants. If United doesn't move quickly to get this new labor contract negotiated, the union may take steps to launch a strike. The latest polls from Nevada show Bernie Sanders tied with Hillary Clinton three days before the Democratic primary caucus. Labor unions supporting both Clinton and Sanders are working to get caucus goers out on Saturday. Bethany Kahn is communications director for the Culinary Union in Las Vegas. Her union hasn't endorsed a presidential candidate, but is working to strengthen the union and its political clout. We have committed to registering 12,000 union members to vote. We are participating in organizing drives that span about 8,500 workers. And finally, we are removing barriers for about 2,500 workers in Nevada to become American citizens this year. Khan says the presidential primary is creating buzz among culinary workers union members in Nevada. People seem excited by it. They are talking about everything that Trump's been saying. There's a lively discussion happening about Bernie and Hillary. So, 
I think people are very interested in this campaign right now. Oakland Education Association President Trish Gorham says the National Walk-In for Public Education Wednesday highlighted different themes on public education challenges in different cities. In Oakland, Gorham says the focus was on supporting safe schools and communities for students, which led her union to oppose detentions, raids, and deportations of immigrants. We want to have the best conditions for their learning, and we cannot expect the best conditions for learning when a child comes into school and is worrying whether their parents are going to be home when they get home from school, and that's the condition that we are talking about. We deal with a lot of trauma in our city schools through poverty and violence, and this is another trauma that we want to be taken away and not imposed upon our students. Workers Independent News is brought to you by the Office and Professional Employees International Union, online at opeiu.org, and by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, online at goiam.org. You've been listening to WIN, Workers Independent News. For more information, visit laborradio.org. And welcome back to Liberal Dan Radio, Talk from the Left, That's Right. This is your host, Dan Zimmerman from New Orleans, Louisiana. To join the uh, <clears throat> show, you can call 347-838-8368. That is area code 347-838-8368. You can join us in the chat room and ask questions there or connect via the Skype button there. Or if you're listening after the live broadcast, you can always leave your comments at liberaldan.com been discussing uh, the passing of uh, Justice Scalia and, you know, the hypocrisy that's going on with uh, whether or not Obama is going to be able to replace him in his term or if we're going to have the longest uh, vacancy on the Supreme Court ever. Now, let's look at, you know, there's some existing rulings that are coming down the pipe. And there's going to be some you know, just generally speaking, if you had a, let's say, a conservative court, you know, it's hard to tell a lot of times with Anthony Scalia, with Justice Kennedy, to see where he would fall. Scalia was pretty consistent. Scalia, Roberts, Alito, um, Thomas, they're all pretty consistently right. There, There is one case that I'll talk about a little bit where Scalia got it correct by siding with the liberal justices on the court. And, of course, Ginsburg, Souter, Sotomayor, and Kagan are typically supporters of left-handed, left-leaning positions. They, you know, you know, with very, very few moving on, very few kind of splitting up their roads. They typically agree. Then you have Kennedy, who, for the most part, is the fifth vote. Obamacare, it was Roberts that was the fifth vote, surprisingly enough. But Kennedy usually is the fifth vote. So what happens in a regular court? When Scalia was alive, if Kennedy's on most issues, regardless of if it comes from a conservative court or liberal court, you would see a 5-4 decision. Kennedy being the swing, and then you would have a precedent. So on some conservative issues, Kennedy would side with the right, and then you'd have a conservative precedent, like you did in Citizens United. On other issues, you know, more social issues like 
gay marriage, uh, Kennedy would come along on the left. And regardless of what the under court's rules, ruling was or what, how it leaned, you would have a liberal precedent. And you couldn't really, on some issues you could guess where Kennedy might go, but sometimes he can be a real wild card. You know, so, but it's now changed because now you have a four, a, a four and a half to three and a half court is what you could kind of describe it as. Because with Kennedy being the swing, let's, let's say you have a, a conservative, there's basically a four, op, four options. You have Kennedy, previously you had a, a liberal court, previously you had two options. Did it matter what the liberal, what the court was? If it's a liberal ruling or a conservative leading ruling, you had a chance of a five-four, five-four one way, five-four the other way. I mean, I guess you could have split decisions where it went like you know four-one-four, where the one person just would refuse to be in concurrence with either side, and as such, you'd have a, you know, you wouldn't have such a decision, and you have a tie, and then what happened? But normally, in normal situations, you would have five-four, four-five. Sometimes you might have a six-three. But you still, you're going to have a clear majority one way or the other. So either you, you, either the conservative argument wins, either for the conservative lower court or against the liberal lower court, or the liberal argument wins either for the liberal lower court ruling or against the conservative lower court ruling. So there's really one or two options, and both of them result in a precedent setting, being set. Now, in the case of this now four-and-a-half to three-and-a-half court, as I'm calling it, just thought of that now. You have a situation where you have, let's say you have a liberal ruling from a liberal lower court. Let's just say the Ninth Circuit. It's a safe bet that it's going to have a agreement that liberal people will agree with. Now, if Kennedy decides, decides to decide with the liberal side, you have a five to three precedent. Same thing as before. Now, let's say you're coming from the Fifth Circuit, the one in New Orleans that tends to be more conservative and wrong a lot. So let's say the conservative ruling comes out of there. And if Kennedy sides with the liberal side, again, that a lower court ruling is overturned and you have set up a liberal precedent that is in effect nationwide. Now, so in two of the options, two of the ways that you can go, you wind up having a liberal nationwide precedent in the current court. If the Ninth Circuit makes a ruling and Kennedy sides with the conservatives, it is now 4-4. It is a tie. The court basically, I forget the exact term and wording. I had it in my head the other day. But it was it's basically they're concurring. They're not concurring with the lower courts, but they're basically allowing the lower courts ruling to stand without a heat, without. It's as if the Supreme Court didn't hear the case. It does not create a nationwide conservative precedence. And it instead just lower court ruling stands in that particular case, but doesn't apply all over. So 
And then in the liberal, if you have a liberal ruling, or, you have a, or let's say you have a conservative ruling from the fifth. And so that was the ninth making everything. You get 4-4 four, four, because Kennedy signs a conservative. The liberal ruling stands, but it doesn't apply nationwide. If the Fifth Circuit then makes a conservative decision and Kennedy sides with the conservatives, you then have 4-4. The conservative ruling stands, but again, it doesn't apply nationwide. So the only rulings that will apply nationwide are when, is when Kennedy stands with the liberals on a typically situated court where you have liberals and conservatives you know, siding with their normal sides and, and, and Kennedy being the swing. But on, when Kennedy sides with the conservatives, you'll never have a national precedent that's a conservative precedent. You may still have the ruling stand, but it's not going to be a national precedent. So as it stands right now, even if the conservatives take in Congress or in Senate take no action, the end result is you still have a much more slanted to the left court than existed previously. And the only precedents that can take the only national precedents that can be set from this point on are will require liberal justices to come along the way and get and get you there. So Again, another one of the reasons. I'm more than happy to let the Republicans and the Senate drag this out, make an ass of themselves, <coughs> and basically say, look, we're going to obstruct, obstruct, obstruct. Because at the end of the day, you are going to have only liberal, only the only precedents that will be being set nationwide will be liberal ones. And most likely there will be social ones, the, social, the socially liberal thing. So, you have that. That's basically how it's going to be impacted. You're going to have five, three liberal rulings that'll stand, either overturning the Fifth Circuit or other courts that make conservative rulings, or five, three, you know, affirming lower court liberal rulings, you know, like the ninth. But you're not going to see national precedent any other way. And so, it's going to be frustrating. Now, the conservatives may very well use this in the presidential election thing. See how important it is? The only, you're only getting liberal things passed. And a lot of this we'll see when the court comes in session and you have the eight justices coming out with their rulings on the cases that are taking place. And one of those things, a lot of those cases, well, I'll talk about those cases in a little bit. But let's first talk about some of the older cases that have been detected, that have been discussed. Um, we have the one case that I actually agree with Scalia on, um, which is Arizona versus Gantt. This is the, you know, maybe a broken clock, right? twice a day or once if it's on military time. Uh, and it's basically those who are not familiar with Arizona versus Gantt get an individual who was put in handcuffs and put in the back of the police car. They then performed a search on the vehicle to search for something. And they found something, but the lawyers argued that because he was already detained, 
that the search was unreasonable because the search, that search was supposedly done for the safety. Because if you're a police officer, you confront somebody, person is not yet detained, you, are, you have the authority to go through the police car according to the previous Supreme Court precedent and search the vehicle for anything that might be used as a weapon. And anything else you have to come across, meh, whatever. I don't necessarily agree with that because you could just simply take the person immediately, arrest them immediately, put them back in the car immediately, and then there's no threat. Then you might choose to let them out go if maybe you decided there is no threat. But once they're in arrest, under arrest in the back of the car, the liberal court, with which Scalia concurred, basically said that the search was unreasonable. Um, one of the things that he said, which I have to include in this in the podcast, is that part of his wording in, in the in the is that Justice Alito argues that there's no reason to adopt a rule limiting automobile arrest searches to those cases where the search object is evidence of the crime of arrest. I disagree. The formulation of officers' authority both preserves the outcomes of our prior cases and tethers the scope and rationale to the doctrine to the triggering event. Belton, by contrast, allowed searches precisely when it was exigency-based rationale was, was, was least applicable. The fact of the arrest is in the automobile context makes searches on exigency grounds less reasonable, not more. I also disagree with Justice Alito's conclusory assertion that this standard will be difficult to administer in practice, uh, post at seven. The ease of its application in this case would suggest otherwise. No other justice, however, shares my view that application of Chimel in this context should be entirely abandoned. It seems to me it seems to me unacceptable for the court to come forth with a four-to-one-to-four opinion that leaves the governing rule uncertain. I am therefore confronted with the choice of either leaving the current understanding of Belton and Thornton in effect or acceding to what seems to me the artificial narrowing of those cases adopted by Justice Stevens. The latter, as I have said, doesn't – I'm sorry, I said Stevens or Souter earlier, not Stevens. The latter, as I have said, does not provide with the degree of certainty I think desirable in this field but the former opens the field to what I think are plainly unconstitutional searches, which is the greater evil. evil. Therefore, I join in the opinion of the court. So not only was Scalia, you know, reasonable in this and, and sided with the right side, because one would think that, you know, if you're in a, under arrest, there's no reason to do a safety search of somebody's car because the person's under arrest. They can't do anything unless they're Houdini and can get out of the cops. So not only did he, did, he, did he think that the conservatives were wrong in this issue, but he also was pragmatic enough to say, look, this isn't perfect, but it gets me to the closest to where I think we should be. Uh, and, a, and the conservative ruling puts us further away than where we should be. So therefore, I'm going to side with the liberals on this issue. And so, look, he, he made, in my opinion, he made the absolutely right ruling, the correct ruling in this case. So, look, I want to be able to say in this course of this show that he wasn't completely wrong, that there are certain things that he agree with, but, you know, a lot of people say, you know, you know I've, I've been friends with lawyers who have read his arguments before, and, and his arguments that have been made are, are the work of a genius, and I'm not going to disagree with that. I mean, I haven't read as many of his rulings or his opinions or his dissents or what have you as other people have, but, 
you know, I'll give him that he was likely a genius. You know, there are evil geniuses. You know, to be an evil genius, you have to be a genius. But you could also not be good. Um, but there are there are many more circumstances where I think he is wrong. One of these I've talked about on my on my podcast uh, when we're discussing Prop Eight, uh, when the court didn't come out and fully, you know, in my opinion, the right ruling on Prop Eight would have been to just apply it nationwide and not strictly limit it to California. Um, regardless, Scalia um, defended the Prop uh, Prop Eight side by saying that harm could come from allowing gay marriage to become legal in this country. So that even though California does allow for couples to homosexual partners to adopt, um, and as such, California does not believe that adoption by couples of homosexual partners is harmful to children, other states do believe it to be harmful, and that is something that should be considered in deliberation over this topic, that if marriage should be made legal nationwide, because then you could absolutely have adoptions done by couples with homosexual partners. But in my opinion... Justice, and I've said this before on the podcast, too. Justice Scalia at this point had it backwards. He and the proponents of Prop 8 argue that because there is no scientific data showing a lack of harm on children being raised by couples of homosexual partners, that it means that you should be able to ban gay marriage, since allowing gay marriage would allow us to adopt. However, that logic is flawed because it requires you to prove a negative. And, and in my opinion, government should have to be the one that proves the rational basis to ban an activity. And in order to have the rational basis to ban an activity, it should prove why the activity is harmful. So, the, so what they're basically saying is that if you're a gay person and you're in, you're in a couple and you want to adopt, that you should have to prove that it's not harmful for the kid. And I disagree. And I said that you should not, not only, the owner shouldn't be on you, the person who wants to adopt, the owner should be on government to say, look, the person should be able to say, I should have the right to adopt. Government is responsible to prove why it has the authority to restrict my behavior on this, to restrict my ability to have <clears throat> an adoption. And obviously, the court sided against him, but this is one of the areas where Scalia, in my opinion, was not only wrong, but really wrong. And <clears throat> in reality, against many of the things that I hear conservatives claim where they're talking about rights. Conservatives will claim often, you know, and, and I had this debate the other day with somebody who tried to claim a, a position of mine and, and he did it falsely, um, that you know, whether or not where rights come from or the rights, natural rights, do you automatically have them or does government grant them to you? And I don't believe that government grants rights. I don't, I don't believe that at all. This person with whom I was having a conversation with had previously stated that X, whatever X was, X was not a right because it was not enumerated in the Constitution, which is plainly false. Because if you look at the Ninth Amendment, the Ninth Amendment clearly states that the non-enumeration of rights shall not be construed to, be, to mean that those rights are not retained by the people. So clearly... You know, if you if you embrace the idea that rights don't come from government and instead they come naturally to you, and that government should only have the authority to restrict behaviors based off the idea that those behaviors are harmful to others, then in that case, government should be the one. When government bans an activity, 
They're being harmful. If somebody challenged that in court, the onus again should be on government to prove why it has that authority to restrict that behavior. And not, though it shouldn't be on the individual, but Scalia, these, the, the person who conservatives almost are deifying or at least making, into, making a pre or a, a saint, Saint Scalia, he, those, he is basically saying the exact opposite, that, that the individual should be able to prove, should, should be the one forced to prove why it's not harmful for gay people to adopt. And that government should not be required to prove it. The government should have the authority to ban it just because it thinks it might be harmful. I'm sorry, but thinking something might be harmful is not good enough in my mind to restrict the activity of another person. It's as simple as that. So, to me, that's why Scalia had it backwards on harm. Now, in one of the worst, worst rulings that I think the court has ever made in recent history, I'm not going to say it's worse than Plessy versus Ferguson or Dred Scott. It's pretty bad. Salinas versus Texas. Remember in this case, you had, the, you had a situation where Salinas was in, he was being asked questions by the police. He was not under arrest. There became a point in time in the questioning where he decided he was just going to shut up and he wasn't going to talk anymore. Now, we all have the right to remain silent. And if you were under arrest and told that you have the right to remain silent. You can say nothing, and your silence is not used against you. But, because you're assumed, you're assumed in that case when you're under arrest to know nothing about the law and legal precedent or what have you. So the police officers are required to, at that point, tell you what your rights are and, keep you, and, so you, and then you can decide to say things or not say things. However, what the court ruled here, and Scalia agreed with the, with the opinion, with Alito and Kennedy, so I don't have a lot of faith in Kennedy on, on justice issues, at least, because Kennedy also sided against Gantt. So Kennedy has his issues. <clears throat> but Scalia agreed with Alito and the other conservatives in the case, basically saying that when you're not under arrest, you should then be considered to know the law. And that in order for you to have the right to remain silent, you have to invoke it, meaning you have to speak. In order for you to retain your right to remain silent and use that, you have to not have that silence used against you in a court of law, you have to say something? That's just kooky. It's kooky. There's no other way to say it. It's crazy. There's no reason why one should have to say, say, I'm invoking my right to remain silent. In doing so, you're not silent. And Scalia agreed with, again, the, the conservatives on the court, stating that 
Petitioner claims that the reliance on the Fifth Amendment privilege is the most likely explanation for silence in a case like this. But such silence is insolubly ambiguous. Uh, to be sure, the petitioner might have declined to answer the officer's question in reliance on his constitutional privilege. He might have also done so because he was trying to think of a good lie, because he was embarrassed, or because he was protecting somebody else. Not every such possible explanation for silence is prohibitive of, prohibitive of guilt, but neither is every possible explanation protected by the Fifth Amendment. Petitioner also suggested it would be unfair to require a suspect schooled in the particulars of legal doctrine to do anything more than remain silent in order to remove his remain silent. But the Fifth Amendment guarantees that no one may be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, not an unqualified right to remain silent. In any case, that's, it is settled that the forfeiture of the privilege against self-incrimination need not be knowing. So the court has basically said, look, we're, we're, we're flat out saying right now that your right to be silent must be invoked if you're not under arrest. It's ridiculous. One of the, again, one of the most ridiculous rulings that this court has had in the recent future, recent present and recent future. Uh, but going back in time, let's go all the way back to Lawrence v. Texas. Remember Lawrence v. Texas um, you had two individuals who were uh, involved in having homosexual relations, which would be in violation of Texas law at the time. Uh, let's see. Liberty finds no refuge in a jurisprudence of doubt. He's quoting Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is the case that basically preserved and strengthened the Roe v. Wade. Um, that was a court's sensuous response barely more than a decade ago, those seeking to overrule Roe v. Wade. The court's response today to those who have engaged in a 17-year crusade to overrule Bowers v. Hardwick is very different, and the need for stability and certainty presents no barrier. So, in this case, he wants to affirm stare decisis. He wants to keep a ruling in fact say that 17 years ago should be uh, maintained um, today's approach to stereotypes. Again, he hadn't yet said the stereotypes, but I, you know, but I said that. But now that today's approach to stereotypes invites us to overrule an erroneously decided precedent, including an intensely divisive decision. So he doesn't want to overrule a previous ruling. Um, and basically, he uh, he's basically supporting the law that would criminalize what Texas would rule as deviant sexual behavior. Um, today's opinion is the product of a court, which is the product of a law profession culture that has largely signed on to the so-called homosexual agenda, by which I mean the agenda that promoted by some homosexual activists directed at eliminating the moral opprobrium that is traditionally attached to homosexual conduct. I noted in an earlier opinion the fact that the American Association of Law Schools to which any reputable law school must seek to belong, excludes from membership any school that refuses to ban from its job and every fast facilities a law firm that does not wish to hire as a prospective partner a person who openly engages <coughs> in a homosexual conduct. So let me be clear. I have nothing against homosexuals or any other group. It's against Scalia talking. Now this is, here, remember this. I am quoting Scalia right here for the purposes of making an argument. I'm just going to be, let me just stop and just say, 
Right now, I am quoting Scalia. We'll get back to that in a little bit. Let me be clear. I have nothing against homosexuals or any other group promoting their agenda through normal democratic means, social perceptions of sexual and other morality change over time. Every group has the right to persuade its fellow citizens that it's the view of matters is the best. Homosexuals have achieved some successes. It's attested to the fact that Texas is one of the few remaining states that criminalize private consensual homosexual acts. But persuading one's fellow citizens one thing and imposing one's views in absence of a democratic majority will is something else. Now, this is, again, is an amazing statement by Scalia in that the hero of the right, Scalia, is saying that people should have the democratic ability to restrain activity. But that's people acting in the name of government. Again, it's people having the right to tell an individual or having the authority to tell an individual what to do with their lives, despite no show of harm. That the people are not required to prove the harm. And that it, just because the people want to criminalize, that that should be the will and that should be the law of the land. So... Scalia was not a strict constitutionalist by any shape or form because people shouldn't have the authority to trample over other people's rights. So the idea that Scalia was some sort of strict conservative is just baffling. But let's let's so let's let's talk about that for a second, Don, because I'm going to go. Let's stop talking about Scalia's cases for a second, and instead we're going to talk about the current case before the court that Scalia supposedly created a lot of controversy when he was discussing this particular issue. And that is the court dealing with the University of Texas and whether or not Scalia said or suggested that blacks, quote, blacks belong to flower colleges. Scalia said this. In you know, University of Texas has determined that if it excludes race as a factor, that remaining 25% would almost entirely be white. There are arguments. Former U.S. Solicitor General Greg Gare, who was representing the university, was explaining this to the justices. At that point, Scalia jumped in, questioning whether increasing the number of African Americans at the flagship university in Austin was in the black students' best interest. He said, there are those who contend that it does not benefit African-Americans to get them into the University of Texas where they do not do well, as opposed to them having to go to a less advanced school, a slower track school where they would do well. One of the briefs pointed out that most of the black scientists in this country don't come from schools like the University of Texas. They come from lesser schools that did not feel there is being pushed ahead in classes that are too fast for them. <coughs> so did Scalia say these words? I mean, obviously he was citing somebody, just as I just before was citing Scalia's opinion. 
But just because I cite Scalia's opinion, it doesn't mean I agree with it. Scalia's first words, there are those who contend that. I, he is making basically the representation of an amicus brief that was filed on behalf of somebody else to the court and was relaying this to former U.S. Solicitor General Garr. And as he said, one of the briefs pointed out, he's not saying it, one of the briefs pointed out that most black scientists in this country don't come from schools like the University of Texas. Now, whether or not that's true or not, whatever. But he is basically, the people filing the amicus briefs are not necessarily standing before the court making their arguments, but apparently they feel necessary to file the amicus brief. So they do. He wanted to say, I'm just not impressed by the fact the University of Texas may have fewer blacks. Maybe it ought to have fewer. I don't think it stands to reason that it is a good thing for the University of Texas to admit as many blacks as possible. <clears throat> I mean, his using of words is probably a little insensitive, but again, he's basically being asked, he's asking whether or not when he's making, when he would, if he would be making this decision, which he no longer is, he would be, he is asking to, for Solicitor Gar to basically answer that claim made in the briefs or those claims being made in the briefs. He's being asked to you know, give an answer to that so that he can have a picture from both sides from which to make a decision. Now, why would Scalia do this? Well, Scalia was known to actually hire clerks who were very liberal, or at least one that was very liberal. He wanted the ability to be able to debate these clerks and, and hear the other side so he can have this discussion and, and, and either better form his opinions or maybe he might be convinced otherwise. Who knows? Maybe that happened uh, in the case with Gantt v. Arizona, Arizona v. Gantt. So, but a lot of people are trying to say that these are Scalia's beliefs and papers jumped on it. To me, it was very irresponsible for these papers to do because in reality, he wasn't actually saying, this is my belief. If he said, this is my belief, then great, wonderful, attack him for it. But citing the belief of somebody else, when you're trying to come to a, a decision on a case that reaches the Supreme Court, if I'm a Supreme Court justice, I may very well have done the same thing. I may very well have said, well, look, there's this amicus, amicus brief here. Now, maybe I would have been a little more political with it and said, I'm not saying I agree with it or disagree with it. I just want your opinion on what this amicus brief, amicus brief says. They say this, what is your counter to it? Maybe that would have been a better way to word it. But considering that he's saying there are those who contend, and one of the briefs pointed out, He's obviously talking from the, he's pulling their words out and presenting it to the court from their point of view, not from his point of view. And to, and I actually got into an argument with one of the, somebody who I know who is kind of high up in Democratic Party circles. Not very close friends with him. I've met him. He's a nice guy. He has a good husband. He's very passionate about politics. And in general, I agree with him on many, many issues. But on this issue, he was wrong, I feel. And look, I am the type of person that if I don't, I, 
I don't have to agree with you on most things to point out that you're treated unfairly. When Rick Santorum, bring this up again, I guess, when Rick Santorum was running for office, running for president, and he said that if you were going to challenge President Obama on Obamacare, that Mitt Romney was the worst Republican to choose. And then a New York Times journalist, I use that term loosely, said, do you really believe that Mitt Romney is the worst Republican? It was a stupid question, and it was an example of treating Santorum unfairly. When people try and claim that Ted Cruz is not eligible to be president, um, they are treating Cruz unfairly because they're using a lie to back up their arguments. So, and I'll stand up for Cruz and his eligibility to run. Not because I agree with Cruz, but because I don't think trying to argue falsehoods about him is a way that you should defeat him. If Cruz really isn't a good candidate for president, beat him on the ideas. Don't beat him on fabrications. Now, maybe that's not smart politics, but I guess maybe that's why I don't win when I've run previously. And just as I defended Cruz beforehand, I defended Carson when Cruz did the horrible activity of lying about Carson being having dropped out dropped out the race. Carson was treated unfairly, and I attacked Cruz for it. Simple as that. So Scalia, in this case, I feel was being treated unfairly. Now I don't. There are plenty of reasons to despise Scalia and his rulings. Plenty. Plenty of reasons. On voting rights. Actually, let's see. Those are the Supreme Court rulings coming up. So, you know, his rulings on gay rights, his ruling on Obamacare, his rulings on Prop 8, all of those rulings, you know, you can find plenty of reasons to despise him. His rule, his belief that it is not unconstitutional to, uh, to give the death penalty to individuals who are wrongly convicted. The idea that the court holds that uh, somebody can't file a habeas writ of habeas. Now, I need to make sure and check and see. I don't, I don't know if that was – I'm assuming that Scalia voted in support of the idea that you shouldn't let somebody out of jail on a writ of habeas corpus because he was late in technically filling out a piece. There was a case where the guy um, was told by a judge, this is your filing date. Uh, that judge gave the wrong date. The date he gave was too late. I was past the deadline. He filled, he filled the paperwork in by the date given by the judge. He relied on, relied on the judge's information, and the judge was wrong. And the Supreme Court said, nope, sorry, screw you. Too bad. You should have known, despite the fact that this person who is, has authority of you told you otherwise. These people, I swear to God, this is just ridiculous that that these these cases. Okay, so upcoming cases that are coming to the Supreme Court. Uh, you have 
that case dealing with uh, University of Texas that, of course, is going to be uh, ruled upon, and it's possible that you might not see, you know, depending on how Kennedy goes, obviously Kennedy is still the key, but depending on how Kennedy goes, well, it will depend on what actually happens nationally. If Kennedy sides with the liberals on it and supports the, I guess, racial quotas and affirmative action, uh, that uh, you might not, you know, you might actually see it over to the ruling or University of Texas supported. So, what are some of the other races, the other elections that are things that are coming up before the show ends? We have voting rights. Um, the court is considering changing the way that um, state and municipal districts are voting. Um, basically, saying, you know, can you draw a district based off of voters only, or can you use total population, meaning non-citizens who can't vote? Children who can't vote, prisoners, ex-felons, people with intellectual disabilities, yada, yada, yada. Now, they're saying that it could result in more rural, mostly white districts um, if you allow it to be only voters that are counted and that you would limit Hispanic says. However, because you've changed the Voting Rights Act, this is where I disagree with, with, with some of the analysis here. You've changed the Voting Rights Act in such a way that basically allows for the redrawing of districts any way possible. So if you allow these districts to be redrawn with people who can't vote, you can now create majority white voter districts that are in the rural and just gerrymander clumps of non-voting, clumps areas that have high non-voting blocks in them say, okay, well, this district is made up of these people plus these other people and basically give conservatives more districts. I think you should only be able to use individuals who are voters and not non-citizens. You should, non-citizens should not be counted for purposes of voting. And I mean, that's goes against what is typically the view, but there's if, if they go the other way and they allow you to use non-citizens, you can draw these districts in such a way that would enable um, districts to be redrawn so that white conservatives, white rural people have the majority of the have stays and have say in a district, and you don't you have to put you'll have to put less voters in a district to make it a conservative district because you can then lump non-voters in and have it go the way of the other side, and that is a problem. And I don't understand why people on my side don't see it. Um, affirmative action, again, university admissions. Uh, again, this, this article is horrible because it, again, is misquoting Scalia, trying to say that it's his words that have made words made in the amicus brief. Um, labor union case, uh, case conservatives were most assured of winning. During oral arguments, the conservatives sharply criticized the current system or public employees in 23 states must pay the cost of collective bargaining, even they disagree with union demands. <coughs> Kennedy leading the way appeared likely to strike down the requirements, which would reverse the lower court and deal a major blow to the financial credit of the group. Now, 
if you t- if Kennedy goes with the conservatives and rule and says and makes it a four four, the lower court's ruling stands, which is a liberal ruling, and the and the labor and you are no longer having a case where the uh, where the people aren't required to not pay or what have you. Um, abortion clinics in Texas are challenging a state law uh, upheld in lower courts imposes tough restrictions. Um, now, so you'll have a situation where it's possible that Kennedy could give you a 4-4 tie upholding the Texas law, but would not set a new precedent. However, Kennedy has in the past voted pro-choice. So I don't think this is necessarily going to be a case that, that it matters where Scalia's death matters. I think you're going to see 5-3 instead of 5-4 in this case, and it probably will be overturned. Um, contraception, religious nonprofits such as charity schools and hospitals are seeking an exemption uh, from the mandate. Um, now, you might see a 4-4 tie because Kennedy did rule on the side of Hobby Lobby, but because you don't have Scalia, the contraceptive mandate would stay in place because it would be a 4-4 tie. And it would flip the lower courts. It wouldn't. It can't flip the lower courts' ruling. And immigration, um, Obama already had a decent chance of reversing an appeals court ruling about winning, um, and six months to begin implementing his immigration plan. Scott Scalia, um, president, still needs a, a vote. Um, so in this case, again, you have a situation where if the president gets Kennedy to vote to support his side, then he gets he gets to win. But if he doesn't, the lower court's decision against him still stands, but it's not national precedent, and therefore perhaps a future president, president could influence something similar and have it be, I guess, re-challenged. Anyway, so that's pretty much all I'm going to talk about today on Scalia. If, if you have any more comments or questions or concerns about this, again, please go to liberaldan.com. You can see the show page there and leave your comments about, you know, maybe is there another Scalia ruling that you think should have been covered? You know, please let me know. Um, again, there's also, you can retweet the treat that I, that I shared earlier. And if you do, you have a chance to win a bumper sticker. Um, and you have your choice. There's the one that either says, you know, playing liberal band radio or in 2016, give America the D. Uh, either one could be yours if you participate and join in. So that is pretty much the end of the show for today. I'll go ahead and in a couple minutes early. Um, again, if you want to follow me at Liberal Dan Radio on Twitter, Facebook.com slash Liberal Dan um, or BlogTalkRadio.com slash Liberal Dan as well. Um, I'll be back next week, 8 p.m. Central on Blog Talk Radio. Until then, this is Dan Zimmerman with Liberal Dan Radio. Talk from the left. That's right.